The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. This afternoon show entirely dedicated to dissecting the past, the present, the future, everything that we know so far about the two male bodies found in Dense Brush near Gillum, Manitoba, which authorities are suspecting those are of teenage murder suspects Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod. Earlier, RCMP Assistant Commissioner Jane McClatchy had a message for everyone affected by the three murders in BC and people living in the Gillum area, basically saying it was a relief. They were happy to be able to finally move past something that stretched on much, much longer than I think any of us would would have expected. And so on that note, we welcome Christian Luprecht to the show, a national security expert. And the last time we spoke to you, Christian, uh, the boys were, we, we weren't sure where they were. So can you take us into your own thoughts on uh, just the events of, of the last few hours, really? So as I speculated last time when we spoke that uh, they had likely wandered off into the woods and uh, given that they needed an autopsy on the bodies, it suggests that uh, they are probably in pretty rough shape, likely because they've gotten stung a million of times by mosquitoes and possibly attacked by bears or otherwise succumbed to the elements, uh, perhaps uh, starved to death along the way. Um, so uh, what RCMP were doing is trying to find any sort of evidence that might uh, give them an indication of where they might want to search. And what was key is that RCMP returned to places that they had already been, especially remote places. And that's what then ultimately turned up items that weren't there the first time. And so you always take pictures when you do these searches. You can then compare things that uh, might have not been there last time. You work with the community members to make sure nobody from the community was out there, left something behind. Uh, and so that's what ultimately then allowed them to narrow down uh, the prospective area of uh, where they might have wandered off into the woods. Christian, when this all started, did you ever expect it to reach this magnitude? This has been going on for about two and a half weeks. So, yeah, I mean, so initially uh, what the RCMP had to do, and you'll recall the initial delay of about four days between the initial murder and until these two individuals were pegged as suspects. And uh, what uh, I think happened in that time is that uh, the father of one of the individuals where they had taken the firearm, um, it, it, it took a day or so for RCMP to put together one and one and realize that there's a firearm that can take in two youths that are reported missing and we have two deaths uh, by firearm. So they then had to send the bullet off to ballistics in Ottawa, get the ballistics match, and at that point they knew that those two youths would be linked uh, to uh, uh, to the body that uh, um, to, to, to the to the uh, to the homicide. Um, and so that was the initial delay. And then, of course, he then had to chase them across the country because they already had a couple days start. They were taking back roads. So that made it more difficult to try to locate them because there were fewer sightings. Um, and then it took the RCMP substantial time to ramp up the search, in part because they had to make sure they had to assure the safety of uh, the officers, uh, as well as the members of the community. You'll recall last time when I spoke, I mentioned both Mayor Thorpe and Moncton, where the RCMP have learned hard lessons about ensuring that uh, both the community as well as their own members are safe uh, when they're dealing with individuals that are considered extremely dangerous. And so only then could they then uh, mount a substantial search. But in the middle of the summer, as you, might, as you might imagine, it takes a while to find the staffing resources 
And then you have to fly all the individuals and all the equipment up there. You have to feed individuals. You have to house them. Um, and so all that shows that, yes, we can do, the RCMP is capable of doing uh, very effective and very good policing on a national scale for difficult manhunts. Uh, but that in Canada, that can be challenging given the vastness of the terrain and the challenges uh, that the terrain uh, can pose between British Columbia and uh, um, and uh, Manitoba. And I guess the last thing to add, perhaps, is that one of the initial delays was that um, after the challenges the RCMP has had investigating some of these cases, in particular the recent controversial case in Saskatchewan, um, uh, all these murder investigations when dead bodies are now found in remote locations, it requires a specialized investigative team uh, to come in. And in that case, it required the team from Vancouver to fly uh, up to the north. And so that, again, was a, was a day's delay. And so that explains how you can get from uh, a murder and a couple of missing youths to two and a half weeks before you can actually locate the bodies. When we talk about the the ideal of how many people you put and, and the resources that you put towards this effort and then the reality of the situation where it's, you just simply probably don't have the manpower to, to cover the terrain that, that we're speaking of, that we're dealing with, how how, do the, how are those decisions made? When, when do they decide to scale back? When do they decide to go full force when new evidence arrives? So there's two dimensions to this. One is to make sure that investigations are run professionally um, and making sure that if you need to secure a conviction, you can actually do that. And that was one of the lessons um, out of uh, out of Saskatchewan, um, that there were a number of mistakes made with regards to how the evidence was secured and whatnot. And so this is why um, protocols have been changed substantially. Uh, with regards to resources, of course, so uh, to staff up, um, you usually then call one or two members from various detachments, which is not that easy when you're in the middle of uh, summer vacation season. And then you also have to decide what those specialized assets you acquire. And so I think one of the curiosities is why the military was called in relatively late into the search because if you know it's going to take you several days to secure the area and to, and to surge with lift capacity to fly your members in at the necessary equipment, then one of the ways to backfill those gaps is essentially by calling in uh, um, ISR, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance assets from the military. But I think that occurred to someone in Ottawa, uh, perhaps not quite as quickly uh, as it should have in terms of how they can fill some of the gaps um, in the staffing resources in the short term. Christian, I think a lot of people are going to ask the question, with all of the resources up there and all the high-tech equipment, we find out today that these two male bodies were found a kilometer in the dense brush, in the dense brush from where all those items were found by the river and only eight kilometers away from the burnt-out vehicle. Now, with all of that equipment, I think a lot of people are wondering, you know, how did they not figure this out sooner than they did? Yeah, it's a good question. But of course, if you've been up in that neighborhood in uh, northern Manitoba, I mean, this is extremely dense brush. So um, it's it, it's quite possible that, for instance, the infrared system would not necessarily pick up bodies, especially if those bodies are already, if, if they're already deceased by the time you run your infrared uh, assets over the uh, over the area. Uh, and the same with the ground radar, because the ground radar might have trouble penetrating uh, some of the foliage if the foliage is sufficiently dense. And of course, they would have known that the RCMP is going to mount a major hunt for them. So they would have gone off into um, as uh, thick a terrain as they could. But I think what they did then in the process is if, if you're, I think even the best survivalist would have trouble in that part of the country. And so if you're untrained and you don't have 
uh, sufficient supplies with you, you won't find your way back out of that uh, of that dense bush. And that's ultimately, I think, why it was so difficult uh, to locate the bodies, because I suspect by the time uh, they mounted the major search, um, it's quite possible that they were already deceased. And I think that's one of the things they want to establish with the autopsy is how long exactly have they been deceased and did the RCMP in indeed miss something and did all that uh, surveillance uh, and reconnaissance equipment miss something or was it just impossible to detect because they were already deceased. Christian, take us into the the level of concern that the RCMP may have had for for community members was now that now that the the bodies have been found which we suspect are of the suspects is this is this letting people rest a little bit easier the RCMP knowing that they're not out there uh, sure. What's key here is I think it, it shows that the RCMP can have very constructive relationships with uh, uh, First Nations communities in this country. And the community would be your most important asset because when you're combing bush that's that dense, you need to have some hints for members of the community about. So if you would try to get away from uh, law enforcement, where would you go? Where would you drive on the road? Where would you ditch the car? Where would you try to perhaps cross the river in a boat or so? Uh, and I suspect one of the key reasons why they were, they did return to certain sites and why they were in the end able to locate those bodies is because they got good cooperation from the local communities who of course have as much of an interest as anyone else to make sure that these individuals are, uh, are ultimately located. Um, and remember, of course, this would have been a scary time for those communities because all those houses were searched uh, by heavily armed members of the uh, of the RCMP. And so um, in these very tight-knit remote northern communities, this would have been uh, quite a quite a shock for the local community. And so uh, I think there's, um, but I think it showed that, that Aboriginal relations uh, and uh, with, with our federal police force worked and worked constructively in this particular case. Kristen, many times throughout the investigation, police were asking people to refrain from posting anything on social media. As a national security expert, whether it's it's this case or others, just how heavily can social media rumors impact an investigation like this? So one of the things that uh, we've learned, especially since 9-11, is uh, the importance of communicating, communicating accurately and in a timely fashion with the public. So this is partially why it's important for the RCMP to provide regular updates and regular press conferences, because if you stay silent, then people will start to speculate. At the same time, you don't, uh, the moment people start posting things on social media, it can generate all sorts of false positives, which then distracts resources from uh, where they're the most needed, because then people might start, uh, you'll, you'll recall that people started reporting sightings, possible sightings in Ontario and whatnot, and that's all helpful um, if, if those sightings are, are positively identified, but uh, if it becomes a, a matter of uh, diluting scarce resources uh, in a critical manhunt. And so I think that's why uh, law enforcement in these particular cases much prefer that the public communicate directly with law enforcement uh, and that it then filter um, the correspondence. You might also think about the fact that inherently um, individuals uh, these days, everybody has access to the internet. So if you're posting on social media without that having been vetted by authorities, it means you might inadvertently tip the hand uh, of where law enforcement or authorities are at and thus give the fugitives a, uh, a heads up. Um, and that's certainly one thing you want to avoid, uh, providing them, providing intelligence to the adversary in this sort of manner. Christian, what do you think comes next? 
Well, I think we'll uh, we'll have an after-action report from the RCMP. We'll have an after-action report from the armed forces that will be looking at uh, why was its equipment not able to detect those two bodies. Um, and we we'll, might also have an after-action report from the Ministry of Justice, under which the RCMP is responsible for contract policing duties in that part of, uh, of Manitoba. Um, so the minister might be asking, uh, uh, might be asking for a report as well. Um, we'll also want to see that and uh, I think what worked and what didn't work, because it reminds us that um, uh, we have a federal police force that ultimately needs to provide uh, quality, equitable levels of policing uh, across a uh, country that is very vast, uh, with very challenging terrain. And so we want to make sure that everybody has access to the same quality of policing and that we can mount the same quality of manhunt. Uh, in large urban centers as we can in rural Canada. And so we'll be looking at staffing, uh, whether we had the right staffing, whether we had the right decision-making, especially in the uh, initial hours, uh, both in the West and British Columbia, as well as then the surge in Manitoba. Uh, and we'll be looking at whether the right assets were deployed at the right time with the right sort of skill sets, uh, or whether there were shortages that ultimately um, delayed or compromised the ability to uh, detect these suspects earlier. That's ultimately what I think the, um, uh, the after-action reports will revolve around, is would it, should it have been possible to detect them earlier um, or uh, were the right decisions made at the right time and uh, they, were simply, uh, they were simply able to outsmart authorities. Christian, always appreciate your insight. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. As we continue our coverage following the end, likely, of a weeks-long manhunt, RCMP announcing today that Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod believed to be dead, we have audio of the RCMP Assistant Commissioner Jane McClatchy in conversation, asked by 680 CJOB's Richard Cloutier where she was when she was notifi- notified about the two bodies being found that are likely those of the murder suspects. Actually, I was in the middle of a meeting and I got a call uh, approximately 10 o'clock this morning that uh, they had discovered two bodies in the search area. And uh, that's when we start rolling in terms of uh, bringing in the resources required to forward um, the investigation by our BC colleagues and to make sure that uh, we we advise the families involved that we are going to be moving forward in, in, for example, prior to the media release, those kind of things. So we, we start the ball rolling to get a whole bunch of steps done prior to us going public. And that's international, given the fact that you have Australia and the United States involved as well. Correct. So you find out that the bodies themselves are about a kilometer away from uh, the remains that were found and then about eight kilometers away from that burnt out vehicle. So the big break here was finding those remains, wasn't it? Well, the items, yeah. The, the, the items that we linked to the suspects that were found on the, on the shores of the river, yeah, that was the big break. Safe to say there was a trail as a result of that or you just fan out based on that? Yeah, I mean, it's it, the... the, the terrain there is so thick I can't call a trail by any stretch of the imagination no it just it just gave us an area to focus our search and very quickly well a couple of days success though yes what happens now um, now the homicide investigators are going to f- can keep it keep doing their work to you know just to make sure that they they understand exactly what took place 
in regards to the the situation in BC. Um, here in Manitoba, we have forensic uh, identification specialists who are at the scene and and will be going over it fairly carefully to collect whatever evidence they can that would be of help in that homicide investigation. And uh, the bodies we found will be sent to Winnipeg for autopsy where we can officially confirm identity and cause of death. Talk about the members that participated in this search and the fine folks of Gillum and other communities. Wow, I mean, that's that's they're an amazing group of people right across the board. The members who took part in this search from day one, uh, they knew that they were going after suspects uh, who were potentially armed and very dangerous, and they were facing that every single day. They were looking through the bush, you know, whether it was daytime, nighttime, going into houses, going... You know, uh, even the the people going by helicopter, there was always a potential that that they could be um, engaged at any point. So talk about bravery. I'm very proud of all of them. And in terms of the communities of Gillum, Fox Lake, Cree Nation, uh, York Landing, Ilford War Lake, uh, First Nation, amazing resilience. These folks were living in a fairly tense circumstance, not knowing if there were bad guys literally you know, lurking in the woods outside their homes, right? That's a pretty scary thing to live with every single day for the period of time. So um, I can only tip my hat to them. They're a very impressive group of people, and they came together, and they helped us out a great deal as well. The folks in Gillum were terrific uh, in terms of that's where we set up our command post and that kind of thing. And, and yeah, I have got nothing but good things to say about these folks. And thankfully, this is still rare in this country. Oh, yes. That is something you can be grateful for, I suppose. Until the next incident happens. Um, Commissioner and Deputy Commissioner, I appreciate the time and and pass on um, our thanks to all the members of the RCMP, uh, not only up in the Gillam area who came from across the country there, the members there locally who often have never engaged in something like this before and all the support services here in Winnipeg and Western Canada. I will do that. Thank you very much. And that is an excellent interview with 680 CGOB's Richard Cloutier. And I I like at the end that he makes note of thanking the RCMP officers across the country for their efforts and also acknowledging that it it was very unfamiliar territory for most, like literally and physically. Oh, for for both the officers involved and the folks in in York Landing and Gillum, I mean, especially the residents, it must have felt like they were in a movie for a couple of weeks. I mean, you talk about remote and, and quiet living. That is the ultimate remote and quiet living experience. You're, you're talking of a town where literally everybody knows everybody that, that walks around and drives around. There is one gas station in that town. There is one restaurant in that town. That is a tight-knit community that was shell-shocked, really, when it was announced that uh, they suspected these two boys were were in the area and they were they were kept on edge for for a couple of weeks and thankfully the RCMP finally believed to it to have found them and for some that nightmare can can finally end coming up after the break we're going to talk to a survival expert to take us into what those last few weeks in the terrain may have looked like the manhunt is over for two British Columbia murder suspects with the discovery this morning of two male bodies in the dense bush in northern Manitoba. Now, we, an autopsy has not yet been conducted, but RCMP are saying they are 
fairly certain that that these are the guys. Joining us now, Sherman Kong, a survival expert with Maple Leaf Survival. And he's going to take us into how exactly anyone could have been living in the dense bush this long. Hi, Sherman. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for asking. So can you just take us into first a lay of the land of, of what someone might expect if they were in in that area? The area up in Gillum is, as many people have probably already alluded to, is very dense, boggy, buggy, swampy. It makes navigating from A to B very difficult, even if you have a map, uh, map and compass. Um, it was very treacherous, uh, increasing the risk of probability, um, increasing, sorry, the probability of injury if one's not already potentially injured. Um, we would have had a tough go of it. It was it's very unforgiving territory. Um, it's not a pleasant place to be. Sherman, when you found out that they were first reported to be in that area, would you have ever expected it to last as long as it did? Um, yes and no. Um, the first reason why yes is because um, every year, many people across Canada end up in survival situations, um, oftentimes unexpectedly. And in many cases, the, the people that find themselves in, this, in, in these scenarios um, sometimes have little to no survival skills. Uh, and they're often found. Um, just recently in Manitoba, we had a case of uh, an 84-year-old woman who has, uh, you know, she was surviving for four days and she was found. Um, so it just goes to show that, you know, it's not the first time that someone has been able to, ex- you know, survive for extended periods of time in the wild. That's not to say, however, that it's not very difficult. Um, so on the one hand, is it surprising that, you know, they've been able to survive well, who knows at this point how long, but if they were, let's just say, you know, still with us not that long ago, um, it's not surprising in that aspect. But um, what makes it very challenging, and uh, in another interview, I was suggesting that, you know, three weeks is kind of pushing it. Um, you know, even if, you know, their mindset was um, well, and even if they had supplies, this, that, and the other, um, any supplies in terms of food, let's say, that they would have brought in with them would have been finite. So, you know, who knows if if these two bodies are theirs. Um, but if they perished, I, I would wonder if it was because of a lack of food. Because Not because you can't go for extended periods of time without food. But in this case, because it wasn't your typical survival situation where you're just kind of hanging around, for lack of a better word, waiting for rescue to, to come. Um, therefore conserving your energy. In this case, if we expected them to be on the run, that adds a different challenge when it comes to food because the terrain is so exhausting that they would have had a higher calorie burn than would normally be the case. Sherman, can you take us into what happens to your body when you're not getting enough food, you're not getting enough water, you're getting too much sun, things like that? Well, in the case of um, water, typical rule of thumb in a survival situation is, you know, two and a half, three days. But by the third day, you're really starting to push it, especially if you're in very challenging conditions like these two would have been in. Um, And you generally don't want to eat if you don't have water. Um, So initially, you know, earlier on when the questions were coming about with respect to food and water, um, if they were you know, in the bush for, let's say, that 15-day mark when, you know, we were still assuming them to be around. Um, My guess was they probably weren't so concerned with water because if they were with us for that long, they obviously would have had, 
you know, water squared away, <clears throat> or at least weren't terribly concerned about because it's not that hard to make water safe to drink. Um, but the larger consideration then would be food. So if you don't have water, everything starts. You, you basically, you don't you don't fire on all cylinders. Um, food. You know, you're going to be weak and lethargic and all that kind of stuff. The larger consideration is the water. Um, but then again, the terrain being as exhausting as it is, um, you know, you start to get hungry. You know, you start to do things out of desperation. Um, you kind of go into that survival mode mentally where you will literally do anything for either water or food. Um, so it would have been interesting to see how they dealt with that. Sherman, when we talk about we we know we can imagine the physical toll of things, but in my head, I think even just being outside for hours, unrelenting, and you have mosquitoes attacking you. Can you can you talk about this the emotional toll that something like this could take on you? Well, the bugs would, as you've mentioned, they're abundant, relentless. There's nothing you can do to stop their onslaught, and they're not your typical bugs, right? Like you got your horse flies, your deer flies, your mosquitoes that are absolutely vicious. It's nothing like we have in the city. Um, But beyond that, in a survival situation, be it a traditional survival situation or let's say more of an escape and evasion type scenario as these two, um, as we're assuming these two would have been employing, um, mindset is absolutely crucial in a survival situation. Um, that, That reigns king. So you can have all the gear and all the training, but none of that means anything if you lose the ability to think coherently, make good decisions, plan your next steps. Um, I mean, it's one thing to train, um, but it's another thing to be in the situation for real. So if you lose your mind, you panic, um, like I said, none of that means anything, and that literally is, is what will cripple someone. Your mind will create literally a heaven or a hell for you so mindset would have been crucial now in this case because you know i've said before i would assume them to be highly motivated to evade capture because the consequences would have been quite dire um that that is you know part of the mindset so could that have pushed them um to remain at large and in the bush longer and um survive a little bit further sure um because your motivation is something that you cannot necessarily underestimate. Um, but at this stage of the game, you know, if, it's, if, if those two bodies are theirs, you know, there's going to be a lot of unanswered questions for sure. Sherman Kong, a survival expert at Maple Leaf Survival. Sherman, thank you so much for sharing your insight with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Morgan Black and Brad Whisker on the 6.30 Chad Afternoon News filling in for Jalen Nye this week. And next, a developing story that we are providing complete coverage on this afternoon. This morning, Mounties found two bodies in dense bush near the banks of the Nelson River. It's going to take autopsies to confirm their identities, but Assistant Commissioner Jane Latchkey is pretty confident the bodies are those of teen BC murder suspects Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski. And... In situations where we're trying to get a little bit closer into the mind of a murder suspect, we always call on Ju Young Lee, an associate professor of sociology at the University of Toronto, and a serial killer expert. Ju Young, how are you? Good. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. All right, I'm gonna hit. I'm gonna hit it off with a heavy question. Okay. What does it take to kill? Well, 
Yeah, that is a heavy question. There are a number of different circumstances that can inspire a person to kill. Um, in the case of young men who go on a killing spree, it can often just take a lifetime of frustration. Uh, there could be some undiagnosed mental illness lingering in the background. There could be familial trauma, something that happened in a, uh, a, a young person's development where they saw violence in the home where they experienced um, you know, coldness from the, one of their family members. There's a whole string of different negative experiences that cumulatively push an individual or even individuals to this point of no return where they begin to see as if uh, violence lashing out at the world is their only way of kind of uh, feeling any sense of power or belonging. Um, and you know, killing sprees are often imagined by uh, the killers as a final act of revenge against the world where you feel as if you've been slighted or wronged. Um, so that's one sort of like general explanation. And, you know, hopefully my hope is that in the coming days and weeks, police will release more information about these young men so we can understand what what may have driven them to do this. On that note, Ju Young, based on, on what we know so far, do you get the sense that, that these boys planned to go about this the way they did? There's a couple of different ways to answer that. One, yes. Um, oftentimes when people go on a killing spree, it's not something that just happens overnight. It's something that they've been fantasizing about. It's something that they've told other people about. Um, they may have even... Uh, been planning this for quite some time. Now, the other side of this is, of, of course, once you are on the run and once you've committed your first killing and you, you sort of realize the gravity of what's happened, um, you know, not many people can really anticipate that moment after the first kill once uh, you, you basically have nowhere else to go except for to run. So, you know, I think pe people sometimes imagine that these these kinds of crimes happen overnight, but they don't. They're, they're almost always preceded by red flags and by formal announcements, whether that means on social media or to friends. Uh, but the other thing is true, which is that once you're out there on the run, you, you sort of don't realize how serious things can get. So we talk about those that, that came into contact with the suspects before they knew who they were or the allegations facing them. What kind of impact does that have in a person when they retrospectively look back that they may have come into contact with a with a killer i mean it's a it's a very scary experience um you know a lot of people who came into contact with serial killers in the past will tell you that they live for a good part of the rest of their lives kind of thinking and imagining what what could have happened if one or two things went differently um and I guess the the only sense of closure these people and everyone else might have is is in knowing that they won't be able to go on to hurt anybody else if indeed they were responsible for what happened. These uh, these kids, I mean, they had a, they had quite the head start. Did, did that likely change their their mental state? Did they probably at some point think, you know what? We're way ahead of the game here. We might actually have a chance at carrying on for quite some time. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that comes also with their age, with young men, young people in general. 
you know, have a sense of invincibility. They they may have believed that they could fool everyone, that they could evade capture for some time and possibly just get away with it. Um, but, you know, the reality of being on the run in this part of Canada that is extremely rural and cut off and, and, and just dense with foliage and the bush, like this was, they were in for a very rude awakening, certainly after a few days of trying to traverse this area and survive. So Ju Young, these were two individuals charged and suspected of murder. It's it's not a solo venture at that point. Do you think that there could have been a moment where, where one individual says, let's just give it up and then the other saying no we have to keep going how, how does that play in where there's two personalities w- with all of this weighing on them definitely there's always a moment where a person hesitates and the other person typically who is more of the mastermind or leader wants to persist and it's kind of a double-edged sword when you have uh, a duo who is suspected of this kind of uh, violence on one hand you know, having somebody with you when you're on the run can be comforting because it's very lonely and it's very isolating. Um, so having somebody with you, you can feel a sense of solidarity with that person, that you're not alone in this fight. Uh, but on the other hand, there are these moments of disagreement. And those moments, uh, you know, are very crucial because sometimes one person can get cold feet and can call it quits. Um, you know, and other times it can lead to it can lead to infighting, which can also lead to violence. Ju Young, these murders happened quickly, and they happened close by, one after another. Then, by all accounts, it sounds like nobody else was hurt throughout this manhunt. Are they classified in your mind as serial killers? Um. Not technically. So the classic definition of serial killing is two or more kills with a cooling off period in between. And the cooling off period is not really, you know, it's not quantified. There's not like a set amount of days, but typically, you know, law enforcement say that there's a, you know, an interim period where um, the individual or individuals who kill kind of go back to their regular lives and live as if they hadn't done anything, and then that urge pops up again. The difference in spree killing is that it's all done within one kind of sustained episode of violence. So the fact that these were happening so close together um, and they weren't returning to their lives, they were sort of doing it on the run, you know, classifies them in the, in the traditional sense as spree killers. Ju Young, I want to go back to the idea of... of- two potential killers instead of a solo incident. How, how does culpability come into play if, if one shoots the gun and the other is just standing by by watching? Yeah, so that's the other thing in a lot of these tandems and duos that go on to kill, and that's true for spree killers and serial killers. Um, you know, it's not as if they, you know, split this violence down the middle and they they both commit the acts. Sometimes one person is the person who actually carries out the act. The other person is there as a lookout or they're there as a ruse, as a person to kind of fool the person that they're trying to to attack. Um, Sometimes the other person is really just an accomplice who helps uh, hide evidence and dispose of bodies. Um, There are a number of different roles within these kinds of tandems and you know i think it's important to realize that it's not as if both 
necessarily commit the same amount of violence. Ju Young Lee, an associate professor of sociology at the University of Toronto and serial killer expert and always a fascinating conversation. Ju Young, thank you so much for attempting to t- take us into the minds of these two young men. Thank you for having me. A lot to digest. I mean, uh, you know, he, he paints a, an interesting picture of what the what these two could have gone through. And in a way, a lot of people are going to want to know what it was like during those two and a half weeks you know, because it's just such a captivating story. But at the end of the day, we'll truly never know of of what that those 16 days it's really so, looked like. It's so frustrating to me that, that we will have these these answers i like i i can't get over just thinking that there were two people involved and and someone was shooting the gun maybe both like i as Jung as Jung was talking about in a in a tandem effort there's so many more layers to this and we've only just begun to get into it more coming up right after this